Tonight's scripture reading will be read from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace ye are saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Good evening and welcome again to our worship service. We are grateful for the presence of each and every one. We are very thankful for the beautiful day that God has blessed us with, the opportunity that we have to be together tonight to worship God in spirit and in truth. I appreciate so much the beautiful songs that we've been privileged to sing together, the song that David led just a moment ago reminding us of the marvelous, matchless grace of God. And tonight, the theme of our study will accentuate the grace of God And we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, and specifically we want to note verses 1 through 10. We do want to take this opportunity to express our thanksgiving to those of you who are mothers. We are very thankful for this day that has been set aside to honor those that fulfill this great role and responsibility. And we are extremely thankful for the influence, the love, and the kindness that you have shown down through the years, the great example that you have set, we are most thankful for that. And I, I think about the words, giving honor to whom honor is due. And our mothers are certainly worthy of that honor. Think with me for just a few moments about what Paul says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As we think about our study tonight, accentuating the grace of God. You know, one of the great concepts of the Bible is grace. The first time that we read of grace is found in Genesis chapter 6, where it is said that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In the New Testament, we read of this great subject, and no doubt there were many examples recorded by sacred writers in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we find this theme reoccurring. And as we think about this subject tonight, the first thing that I want to call your attention to in our study is what sin has done to us. And this is really found in verses 1 through 3. We understand that sin is a result of men and women transgressing the law of God. Now, bear in mind that Satan was the one that introduced temptation to the human family as recorded by Moses in Genesis chapter 3, when Moses came on the scene and asked Mother Eve if God had decreed that they were not to eat of the tree of the garden, that is, the Garden of Eden. God had set forth the divine prohibition, they were not to eat of the tree of life. He said, lest you die. Well, Satan lied to Mother Eve. And the Bible tells us that Mother Eve, that she ate of that forbidden tree. And likewise also Adam ate. They transgressed the law of God. Sin became a reality to those of us who are in the human family. And thus it's been something that we've had to deal with down through the ages. Now John defines sin as the transgression of the law in 1 John chapter 3 at verse 4. But note, if you would, what Paul says in verse 1. 
and you has he made alive or quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, the first thing that we want to think about for just a moment or two is what sin has done to us. In verse 2 he said, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. A couple of things to consider here. First of all, when you think about sin, you have to understand that sin is the transgression of the law, as I said a moment ago. It is disobedience in the eyes of God. Men and women disobeying the very will of God. Unfortunately, when individuals get caught up in a life of sin, they become dominated by that lifestyle. When I think about sin, there are a couple of things that come to mind. First of all, sin separates us from Jehovah God. In Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 12, Paul said, speaking of those who are outside a covenant relationship with the Lord, that they are without hope and without God in this world. And so there is separation. Isaiah said the very same thing in chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. But not only is there the separation that is imposed on the human family because of sin, but there is the shame associated with sin. Solomon wrote centuries ago, the way of the transgressor is hard. I would encourage you to read the book of Luke chapter 15 sometime and note if you would the steps of the prodigal son when he left his father's home. He went out into that far country, and the Bible says there he wasted his substance with riotous or profligate living. The Bible tells us in the narration of this story that he reached a state of destitution and thus found himself feeding with the swine. And then Jesus said he came to himself and said, how many servants, hired servants of my father have bread enough to spare, and I perish here with hunger. This will I do. I will arise and go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. This man left home of his own accord. He made some poor decisions in life. And those decisions ultimately brought shame to his name. Now fortunately for him, he came to himself recognizing the errors of his ways and thus returned home to his father and was reunited with his father. But there is the separation of sin and then the shame of sin. In Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 3, Paul makes an interesting statement about those who are outside of Christ. He said that they were by nature children of wrath. That word nature denotes a mode of feeling and acting which over a period of time becomes second nature. In other words, the idea is here is a person that lives 
in sin over a period of time. And after a period of time, it becomes habit forming. Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, those who had gotten to a state in life where they were past feeling. In other words, they no longer felt the sting and the shame associated with sin. So sin dominates one's life. But there's another point that we need to understand and see in our text, and that is the death that is imposed on the human family because of sin. In verse 1 he said, And you has he made alive or quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You see, sin, as I said a moment ago, separates us from God. What about this death that Paul is talking about? Well, when he wrote to the saints in Rome, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he said, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In chapter 6, verse 23, he said, The wages of sin is death. Those who choose to live in sin are not only separated from God while upon this earth, but if they step out into eternity in that spiritual state, they're lost. Now, I know that there are a lot of people today in our world that look at sin as something that is old-fashioned. That's just a biblical cliche. Well, it's not just a punchline for those who are on television. And I know that there are many people today that downplay the significance of sin that look at sin as something that has been fostered up by those of us who believe the Bible. But you see, sin is a reality in the lives of mankind. It was because of sin that God interposed and set forth the promised seed as revealed by Moses in Genesis chapter 3 at verse 15. And so sin spells doom for those who choose to live in that lifestyle. But now I want you to think in the second place, not just of what sin has done to us, but what Christ has done for us. Because if you pick up in verse 4, there is a marked difference. On the one hand, you have what sin has done to the human family. On the other hand, you have what Christ has done for the human family. Well, what has Christ done for us? Look at verse 4. But God, now contrast that to what Paul has been talking about. He said, and you, has he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins? In other words, here was your old state. Here was your condition prior to your obedience to the gospel of Christ. Here was the state of man prior to the gracious work of God through Jesus Christ on Calvary. But God, who is rich in mercy, God is a merciful being. As a matter of fact, when you think about mercy, you need to understand it in its context. It really denotes active pity. God had pity on the human family. Now, sometimes we talk about mercy today. There are those that have engaged in conduct that has brought about in their lives severe consequences. And sometimes they will ask for mercy. Well, God had mercy on us. 
But note if you would what Paul said. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. One of the great things about the Bible is it underscores the character of God. You and I, we have the opportunity to come face to face with the character of Almighty God. And God is a being of mercy, and he is a being of love. Have you ever noted the numerous times that the Bible speaks of the love of God? It was because of his love that he showered upon us mercy and grace. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God commendeth his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John said in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. In verse 8 of 1 John chapter 4, John said, God is love. Well, God, as a being of love, has sent his son to interpose, intervene on behalf of fallen humanity. And so Paul said, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The phrase, in the heavenly places, appears about 35 times in the book of Ephesians. As a matter of fact, if you'll read the six chapters of the book of Ephesians, you'll note the numerous occasions that Paul alludes to those of us who are Christians. He talks about how we are in Christ, or we have been redeemed in Christ, or we are in the beloved, or we enjoy all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. We enjoy an exalted state because of what Christ has done for us. And sometimes... We may not pause long enough to reflect upon how good God has been to us. And yet the psalmist said in Psalm 100, speaking of the Lord, for he is good. God has been very good to us. So much so that he sent his only begotten son into the world to save us from sin. So that we might escape the bondage of sin and death. Now note, if you would, what he says. Look at verse 7 for just a moment. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are an exceeding, an exceedingly rich individual. How do I know that? Because you have every spiritual blessing known to man. There is not one thing that you need in Christ that has not been made available to you. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us with every, some translations may say all, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You have everything you need in Christ Jesus. I like what John said in 3 John when he wrote to a man by the name of Gaius. And some have questioned the physical state of Gaius, that is his physical condition. Some have speculated about his material state in life. But there was one thing that stood out, and that was his spiritual state. And John said, Beloved, I wish or pray above all things that you may prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. If you're in Christ, you are a rich person. Now, it may be the case that you don't have a lot of money in the bank. Maybe you do not own any kind of land. Maybe you don't have a lot by way of material possessions, but you are rich indeed. And your richness is associated with your relationship to Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people in our world today, they think they're rich because they have a lot of money in the bank. They think they're rich because they own a lot of land. I read recently about an individual very well known that is the largest landowner in the United States of America. That's hard for me to fathom, somebody owning thousands upon thousands of acres of land. It's hard for me to imagine a person that might own over a million acres of land in this country. Well, by the standards of the world, that person is rich. But if you don't have Christ Jesus in your life, you're not rich. Because you don't have that which ultimately brings true peace and satisfaction to your life. I think about people today that have a lot by way of material assets, but they can't sleep at night. As a matter of fact, not only can they not sleep at night, but oftentimes they have psychologists and psychiatrists trying to help them with their mental state. They have anxiety that literally eats them up. Well, the problem is they don't have Christ in their life. But if you have Jesus Christ in your life, you're a rich person. You may not know that, but you're rich. Now look at verse 8. Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, or lest any man should glory. Grace means unmerited favor. That is the unmerited favor of God. I've said it before and I'll say it again because I think it's an accurate definition of grace. I had a college professor on one occasion that defined grace in these terms. He said it is someone doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. Well that's an adequate depiction of grace. God stepped in he aided us because we had a problem. That problem was sin. We were lost and dying in sin. We needed a Savior. And so Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that God spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. You see, we needed God's marvelous, matchless grace. Now there have been a lot of people that have misused the concept of grace. They misunderstand what grace is all about. But there are three things that we need to understand relative to the grace of God. Number one, 
Grace indeed liberates. If you want to be set free from sin, then you have to look to Christ. It is only through the grace of God that you and I have any kind of hope to be saved from sin. Paul said in Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to every man. Grace is what liberates us. I think about people today that have engaged in a life of sin. There are a lot of people in our world today, they have the idea that they've done some things in this life that are beyond the scope of salvation. There is nothing that a person has ever said or done that could remove them from the boundaries of God's matchless grace. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul said, Where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. Well, grace will liberate us. And when I think about the liberating effects of grace, I understand that there are some things that I have to do in order to appropriate that grace. For example, in Ephesians 1.13, Paul said, In whom you also believed, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When I obey the gospel of Christ, that is, when I come to Jesus Christ with simple trusting faith that he is the Son of God, repent of my sins, confess his name before others, and, be, and then am baptized into Christ, then I am ushered into this exalted state. It is in that sphere that I enjoy redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. No wonder Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, to the praise of the glory of his grace. When I respond by faith to the gospel of Christ, then I enjoy what? Forgiveness, redemption. I am endowed with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1 at verse 3. I live in hope of life eternal, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. Titus 1 at verse 2. So grace liberates, but also grace educates. Look again at Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to every man, instructing us to the intent. There's the idea of education. When you talk about grace, there is divine instruction. Go back to Genesis chapter 6. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And yet God said in Genesis chapter 6, verse 14 to Noah, make an ark of gopher wood. There you have divine instructions. Did Noah comply with the instructions given by God? As recorded by Moses in Genesis chapter 6, God set forth the dimensions of the ark. And so in verse 22 of chapter 6, the Bible says, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. God's grace educates us. Well, Paul said we are instructed to the intent that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. You see, there are some things that we have to abstain from. That is, worldly behavior. Why is it we are instructed to abstain from worldly behavior? Because worldliness is an abomination in the eyes of God. The word world 
denotes the cosmos of iniquity. That sphere dominated by Satan. James said, you adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Those who affiliate themselves with the world are at variance with God. And so there is the liberation of grace, the education of grace, and then thirdly, the regulation of grace. Grace liberates, educates, and regulates. How do I know that? Well, sometimes individuals want to misuse grace. They have the idea that once they bask in the grace of God, that they're just at liberty to do as they please. They don't have to worry about anything because God's grace is going to cover that. Well, will God's grace cover my sins? Absolutely. We just noted a moment ago, Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. But in Romans chapter 6, Paul pictures the life of a believer as one who has died to sin and risen to walk in newness of life. And so in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he asks the question, What shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Here's his response. God forbid. How shall we that have died to sin live any longer therein? And the idea is that we put to death that old way of life. We're not going to be controlled by a life of sin. As we've said on numerous occasions, once we become a Christian, we're not going to be perfect. But as long as we're striving to walk in the light, as John talks about in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, then the blood of Christ avails in our life. That is, we're cleansed and made whole. We stand pure and just in the eyes of God. So we're trying to rise above sin. That's what John said in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you, that you sin not. But if any man sins, let him know he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so grace liberates, educates, and regulates. So Paul writes in verse 8, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast or glory. But now look, if you would, at verse 10. We've talked about what sin has done to us. What Christ has done for us, now thirdly, we want to think about what God can do through us. Note verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me just ask this question. Are you a Christian? If you are a child of God, you are a masterpiece you are God's masterpiece. Now sometimes we fail to understand that. We fail to understand that we are a masterpiece in the eyes of God. That he has taken a life that has been dominated by sin. On the road to destruction. He's taken that life and changed it for the better. He saved us. He has endowed us with all of these great spiritual blessings. And now he's given us a purpose for living. You see, if you're a child of God, you have purpose. You have direction in your life. Think about all of the people in our world today. If you ask them, what is your purpose in life? They couldn't tell you the first thing about where they hope to be down the road. 
There are a lot of people today that just lack direction in their life. This past week, we honored our graduates. And I, I was thinking just a moment ago about what Lee was talking about with respect to Matt being honored for being studious. And when I was in high school, I was not, by any stretch of the imagination, a good student. Far from it. As a matter of fact, I was such a poor student that I had, I really didn't have a lot of direction, a lot of purpose. I never will forget, there was a girl that I dated in high school. She was a very pretty little girl. and Anyway, her daddy was a banker. And so her older sister graduated with me. And after graduation, her daddy came up to me and he said, well, what are your plans now? Now this is how... This is how much foresight I had into the future. I said, well, I think I'm going to go get something to eat. Now, that was about as far down the road as I thought when I was 17 years of age. Well, when you obey the gospel, you have direction. You have purpose for life. Because you are a masterpiece of God. I think sometimes we short ourselves as Christians. We don't see ourselves as God sees us. You know, there are a lot of people in DeSoto County today. They like direction. They like purpose. They like fulfillment in their lives. If they were to stop you on the street... And they were to ask you this question. In five minutes, tell me what Christianity has to offer to me. Tell me what you, you folks at Isle of Branch Church of Christ have to offer me in five minutes or less. Could you do that? Could you tell someone what being a child of God has to offer in five minutes or less? You see, if we're a child of God, we ought to be able to look at the Scriptures, internalize what the Bible has to say, and then be able to tell others what this great book says and what it can do for them. Now, you may be sitting there thinking right now, I'm short on ability. Maybe you're like Moses in the long ago. When God called upon Moses to become a great leader and lawgiver in Israel, Moses had any number of reasons why he was not up to the challenge that God had set before him. You might be the very person. You might be the very family to make a difference in the lives of people right here in Olive Branch. I think about Esther. Esther was a great woman. Today we talk about honoring our mothers. You want to talk about one of the great women in the Bible? Read the book of Esther. In Esther chapter 4, the statement was made to her when Mordecai pleaded to her to intercede and save her people, that is the Jewish race, the Jewish nation, he said, who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
There are people that you might be able to reach that I could never, ever reach. There are people that you might be able to have a profound influence upon in this city, in this county, in this state that I might never have the opportunity to reach. God can use you. And God can use me. Now, the point that we're making here is what God can do through us. What we need to do is see ourselves, as Paul said in Romans chapter 6, we need to view ourselves as instruments of righteousness for God. And we need to look for opportunities to use ourselves in service for God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. Because ultimately what we do, we do it to bring honor and glory to God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And so, tonight I would ask you, are you using the talents and the abilities that God has bestowed on you for his glory and his good? Paul said we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto or for good works. There are works that save. There are works that do not save. Works that do not save, meritorious works. But there are works of faith. Read James chapter 2. Read the book of Titus where Paul said that we are to be ready unto every good work. In Titus chapter 2 verse 7 he said we are to show ourselves as a pattern for good works. In chapter 3 verse 18 we are to be careful to maintain good works. So we are to be a working people. You can make the difference in the lives of people. The question is, do you view yourself as an instrument of righteousness in the kingdom of God? I would hope and pray that you bask in the grace of God. That God's grace has reached you. Now if you have not tasted of the benefits and the blessings associated with God's grace... Well, the invitation is extended to you because the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter chapter 3 at verse 9. Paul said that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2 at verse 4. Do you believe that Jesus died, that he died to save you from sin? If so... Well, you're on the right road. What would you need to do? Well, the Bible says you need to believe that he's the son of God, John 8, 24. You need to repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. Confess his name before others, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 2, verse 38. When you do that, the Lord will then add you to the church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ. You'll be, in, you'll be numbered among the redeemed. And you'll have a hope before you called heaven, Titus 1, at verse 2. If you're unfaithful to the cause of Christ, our plea to you tonight, come home. Do so tonight before it's eternally too late. Why not come as we stand and sing?